Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. How? What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuckstables? What the fuckadelics? What the fuckaholics? I guess I'm not tired of doing it. I guess that's what we're learning. This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for listening. I am speaking to you from a hotel room in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I am here at the Just for Laughs uh, International Comedy Festival again for probably, I don't know how many times in my career I've been up here. It's hard to know. I think I started coming up here in 1995. I've been here two days. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. I will say this, John Cale, the legendary John Cale, the musician and record producer John Cale is on the show. He's uh, live from, uh, not live, but he's in the garage. I'm clearly not in the garage. I'm in a hotel room battling with a nap. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going head on into a nap soon from what I can only call some sort of pork-induced coma. But this is different than the other times, my friends. This is different. It's amazing how many people up here. Everybody, Chappelle is up here. Chappelle, Dave Chappelle. I'm doing an impression of somebody none of you know. It's Esty at the Comedy Cellar. Who else did I see? Uh, Andy Kinler was here. We had a lovely time. Kyle Kinane, Pete Holmes. Uh, I saw Arge Barker. I saw Moshe Kasher. Neil Brennan is up here. Uh, Mike Wilmot, the lovely Mike Wilmot, the Canadian crankster, the cranky man of Canada, the Canuck crank. Mike Wilmot, one of the great comedians, is up here. Had some time with him. Some drunken time. Not on my part, but on his part. But that's not unusual. It was a lovely conversation. He was very effusive and supportive, which I will take. Bobby Slayton is here. Bobby Slayton I saw three or four times in the last two hours. In different outfits. Saw him in some gym clothes, and I saw him in some other clothes. He's like, what? And he said, uh, Are we, am I doing a spinoff of your show? Am I doing a spinoff? It's a little low, my impression. Back to uh, Pied de Couchon, the restaurant. Pied de Couchon. I'm not plugging the place. It doesn't need to be plugged. Uh, it, is, it, it is almost a restaurant that celebrates our dominance and apparent contempt for the animal world in the way that it, it's one thing just to have a decadent meal. It's another thing to celebrate uh, you know, the guts and pieces of, of pig and animal that you don't really think you're going to eat in a lifetime. You don't really think that. But I had something over there. I don't know if I can pronounce it in French. I'm not sure it would do you any good if it would help you. I've been to this place before. I haven't been there in a couple of years, but I think that's about right. I'm not saying it's a bad restaurant. It's probably one of the best restaurants I've ever, I've ever eaten in, but it's not. It's something you can only do once every couple of years. I had an in-house made head cheese. Who the fuck goes out of their way to get head cheese? I mean, head cheese is something we laugh about. It's something you see at the supermarket in the deli area. You're not even in the good deli area, but the prepackaged deli area where you're like, oh, my God, who eats that? I think Oscar Mayer might make a might make a head cheese, but not unlike many things that we condescend or think is gross or wrong or maybe just for other people. 
head cheese is a real thing and it, and it can be made in a way that is uh, high-end, high-end head cheese. So the uh, angle of this particular dish was a slab of house-made head cheese over some thinly sliced potatoes with a bit of uh, endive salad on the side with some pecans for some reason. It was a, seemed to be floating in a puddle of, uh, of uh, you know, some sort of oil. So I asked a waiter, what is tonight the best thing to get? He goes, well, this is uh, And I go, what is that exactly? And he says, it's, uh, it's a head cheese, uh, fried. Okay, and then over the thin sliced potato. It's just rarely French. I'm no good with the accents. And this was just a large, maybe one and a half inch thick piece of fried head cheese, which is primarily pieces of pig from the head with large cubes of fat, cubes of fat in it. I think there's a cry for help. This is a genuine cry for help. Someone has to make me stop eating like this. I'm 49 fucking years old. So they bring this thing out and I ate like, you know, most of it. I chose not to eat a couple of the cubes of pure fat because I had this moment where I'm like, dude, Dude, you're 49, you're a Jew, you don't come from the best stock genetically. I don't know, there's heart attacks, there's colon cancer, there's this, there's that, there's things that'll happen. What are you doing? Is this a death wish? Do you enjoy it that much? Stop it, you fuck. And that was said to me in Hebrew, what I just told you. I had to sit here, I spent the last half hour on the computer translating. So that was God speaking to me. Stop it, you fuck, he said. God said to Mark Marin. I mean, come on. All right, stop yelling at you. Thank you, you. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. So I've had a pretty good time up here. I did an amazing live WTF uh, that I'll give to you soon. I don't even want to tell you who was on it right now because then I'll never hear the end of it. When, when, when? I love you people. Do you know how much I love you? Like, it, just in case I do die tonight from lard-induced uh, blood thickness, I just made that disease up. That's not a real disease. Lard-induced blood thickness. So if, in case I died, uh, I, I just want to tell you, you do have a good episode, a live episode. John Cale is on the show today. Did I say that? He's in the garage today. John Cale from the Velvet Underground, the man who produced, uh, I believe, the second Stooges album, the man who produced Patti Smith's uh, Horses album, the man who did you know at least a dozen solo albums on his own, a prodigy of sorts who, who chose against uh, classical and went into avant-garde noise music and sounds. And a man, something you can look forward to in the uh, in this episode is that, uh, you know, after we talked for about an hour and 10 minutes of whatever it was about the Velvet Underground and a bit about his solo career and his producing, he asked me if I, if we were going to talk about the new album. And I, uh, it was a difficult moment for me, but I chose to tell the truth and say, I never received your new album. That's a good moment. I would pay, I, I would just pay special attention to that moment because I didn't know what the fuck was going to happen. In that moment, he shot daggers at me with his eyes. And then I, I think what happened was one of the high points of, of the conversation in that because I didn't, uh, hadn't listened to it. Uh, he had to you know, tell me about it in a very, you know, uh, from his point of view, like, you know, I couldn't impose my judgment on anything, but whatever, maybe I'm reading into it. I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to tell you how I feel about interviews during my intro. I'm not going to do that. That, that this was the last time. I will set a scene for you, but I will not tell you. 
Did I mention I'm going to be in Chicago this week, this Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Main Stage Theater in Chicago? Come out. I know it's Lollapalooza or whatever the festival is. So what? Take an evening. Come out. Come out to the show. It's a lot of shows. How many shows is that? Six? Main Stage, M-A-Y-N-E-S-T-A-G-E. That's this Thursday. What date is that, Mark? Hold on, Mark. Let me check. Open the calendar, asshole. There's no reason to talk to me like that. I don't know why you got to talk to me like that. We're, you know, we're trying to do what we got to do here. Seriously, man, you're on. You're you're recording something right now. Look, just shut the fuck up. All right, I'm looking. Okay, August first, second, third, fourth. Yeah, that should do it. In Chicago at the Main Stage Theater. You know, my name has been mis- mispronounced. Mispronounced? Did I just mispronounce? Mispronounced? People can't seem to get my name right. Marin, M-A-R-O-N. Is there another option to read? How do you not know what that says? Marin, M-A-R-O-N. Not Marin, not Moran, not Moran, not Maroon. What the fuck? Marin, M-A-R-O-N, like Baron. The only other word. A-R-O-N, B, Baron. Put an M there, Marin, shut up. Moron, very clever. But here... The French pronunciation to my name is lovely. Lovely. Maron, Maron, Maron. Sexy. I was at the airport in L.A. at the Air Canada uh, terminal at my gate waiting to board the plane. And I hear them paging some people. Uh, Mr. Fleplain, Fleplain, please come to the uh, ticket counter at gate 22. Uh, could a Monsieur Maron please come there? And I'm like, what? Monsieur Maron? I'm like, huh, I think that might be me. Yes, I am Monsieur Maron. And I twirled my mustache. And I said, what can I do for you? Bonjour. Marc Maron. Like it. Thinking about moving here. Just so I can hear my name said like that all the time. And that thought has passed. I just moved back. That was close. It was an exciting time. It was an exciting time to live here. That four seconds. Look, let's do this. Let's, talk, let's go back to the garage where I have John Cale waiting and talk to him. Enjoy. How are you, sir? I'm very good. John Cale is in my garage. Oh, garage. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful spot, though. Man. Have you been doing a lot of this kind of thing? I mean, is this a, unusual? Not in such a, a, a beautiful place as this. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. What do you, how long are you in L.A. for? Uh, I, I moved out here. When? Oh, uh, back about six years. Oh, so you've been, so you're around here. I'm around. Where, where part of the uh, town do you live in? Uh, Koreatown. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you just wait. Low crime. Christians. Plenty of Christians. Got a new pope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the 480 million Latin American. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, what's, that's what's keeping them in business. Yeah. Did you grow up Catholic? No. Oh, good for you. <laughs> so you, yeah. you. You managed to get out of that yeah. one. What are, you, what's, what are you working on right now? Let's start here and then we'll move back. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to re record. I want to talk to you. Revamp it a bit. You're one of your older records. Yeah, and what, what it was the what? I what did. You... I just want to work on it. Get 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 a looser groove. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, I did. I did it on the on the, on the Fallon show, and it felt really good. And I thought, 
this feels better to me than the record does, and uh, so and it's yours. So yeah. why not just uh, why not just do it? Yeah. When you approach doing music now, I mean, like it's when when someone of your stature, and I have not talked to many, comes to talk to me. You know, you, there's there's got to be this moment where you uh, where I say to myself, all right, where the fuck do you start with this? Because I mean, you have your your career spans a lot of years. You have a profound influence on on just about all of modern music. So I figure, like, if you're going to reapproach one of your own records, when you say it needs a different groove, what groove is that that you're into right now? And how do you like when you say that? Like, what is the vibe that you're looking for? Well, it t- the the you know I I wrote this song with Danger Mouse, yeah, and it and it had what was. Uh, prepared tracks by by Brian. Yeah, and I worked with that. Yeah, and then when we, um, and then I forgot about it. Yeah, right. and I got through the record, and I, I finished the, the the album, and then oh, whoops, we've got three more months to go. Right, let's go back and see what we can. Yeah, and then I realized what we were missing, which was something with the, with the Detroit flavor. Oh, really? And, and uh, you know, a little lope, and uh, I remember this track. Yeah, so I was very. That needed a little bit of nudging and 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 attention, so I did that. But it was still basically that tempo that we had there. So when and you say I'm Detroit, th- you think in Mitch Ryder, you think in Motown, which Motown. Is, that drive, right? Motown. And uh, you know, I was going for something with tambourines, and and it, um, I I didn't get anything. So anyway. Having done that and finished the record, we went out on the road, and of course, you know. Um, I'm learning a little late that really things benefit from taking them out on the road and airing them in public. And when you do them that way, you suddenly get, you know, if you do them, you just do them over and over every night. Yeah. And all of a sudden, one night you say, I'm fed up with this. I'm going to do this. Yeah. And so it's a, it's, so it grows. It evolves yes. while you're doing it. Yes. And it kind of finds its own breath. Right. Now, when you started, like, I, I recently was in, uh, oh, what the hell city was I in? I went to I went to see a show. On John Cage, oh, yeah. and uh, the Cubist, there was a, some sort. It was, it was they, they've done a lot of it, yeah, because it's an anniversary of right, yeah, yeah. And you, you know, your interpretation of of like, I have to assume he was a profound influence on you, John Cage. Yeah. Now, can you sort of explain to me in in your own words, you know, what that did for your brain and what that did for music in in what he did? Yeah, um, he, he got in the door early. Yeah, I mean, I was. I was struggling with Elvis and and rock around the clock and all that stuff. Yeah, but at the same time, I, I wanted to be a composer and 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 really had this this grip from my family of what uh, classical composition and all of that how how important that was and what the values were that were in it. But in Europe at the time, post WW two, everybody was saying, "Listen, you know, we've got a hangover here, and you've got to really prove." what the value of the piece is that you're going to do the social yeah. value of what you're doing before you write it. And I'm Anything, thinking, classical yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, well, if, if you're going to be a contemporary composer, yeah. and, and a lot of the people that were doing avant-garde at the time were really in revolt against this. You know, this thing about religion and its role in art and all of that was really... Uh, a, a bugaboo for me. I just I, I got fed up with it. And one of the things that Cage came along with with his Zen, you know, that right. just opened my eyes. I thought, yeah, there there, there is life after after music. You right. Know, it's like this is fun. Yeah. And um, and, irreverent and sound and texture and it doesn't have to be strict. Well, he 
that that was kind of the bottom line for me was how it it uh, it opened up, up up a whole other attitude towards music that really you didn't have to have this sturm und drang about yeah, yeah. structure and what it yeah. means and you just and that fitted well in with the with the with the rock and roll and all of that but and when when you say classical you you were trained as a classical musician yeah, yeah. and you played viola and viola, cello viola, yeah and yeah. Uh, and and so at that time, when you say the church, are you talking about like the Renaissance, or are you just talking about Europe at the time, or what influence? I'm they talking had? about the role, the part that part the church played in all, in, in in everything, in everything, <laughs> really. And uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and working with coming coming to Tanglewood and 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 going going into master class in composition, where everything was in the mix, you know, and it was it was kind of constricting. Yeah, and I had already made up my mind that I wanted to go and work with Lamont anyway, and I did some things with, with Cage. We performed, and what you was know, it? I, you did you worked with him directly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what what, what were those performances like? Well, it was the Eric Satie piece. Okay, you know, it was like repeat this four hundred and sixty-eight times. Whatever. So all you had was a number to work with. Yes, <laughs> and it was, it was, it was, was a only... short piece. You know, it, right? The Eric Satie piece. Yeah, and. Um, and you had it organized. You yeah. know, people waiting, people playing, people. How many people count. were involved? About ten, I think. Ten yeah. pianists, all switched, and it went on for like twenty-eight hours or something. And did uh, do people stay for the whole run? Or some did, yeah. <laughs> That's not necessarily important, though. Um, it's okay to come and go. We'll be yes. here doing this. Yes. Because that's what yeah. felt when I first saw. Because I'd never seen Cage perform, and I saw this uh, this piece, or it was an ongoing piece. It was, I think it was part of a dance number originally. But there were three musicians. One was on the floor with a guitar, just wrenching sounds out of it that were not necessarily guitar sounds. Someone was playing a reed of a saxophone, not the whole saxophone, and it, it seemed to work in the space. And they there there seemed to be some order to it. But you're saying it was just it was a movement, and there was a number involved. That piece, that yeah. Eric Satie piece in particular. Yeah. yeah, but the rest of the stuff, you know, Cage knocked down the walls of the of the concert hall. You know, everybody in in it was very precious about and and America inherited it. You know, all the symphony concerts and yeah. you had to be quiet to listen right. to this impurity and all of that. <laughs> yeah, and Cage came along and said, you know, fuck it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> enough of this shit. Yeah, we have to relax this thing. Yeah. So when you start when you got together with uh, with Reed and the other cats, I mean, what was the original thing like? How did you guys? I'm, I'm sure you've answered this a million times, but I, I have not asked it because you know I'm a I'm a big Velvet Underground fan. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Brian Eno. I'm a big fan of yours. So like all this stuff comes together somehow. There seems to be an evolution to it. I'm sure it's been explored. I don't know what it is. So you come to Lou, who I imagine was fairly prickly, or he comes to you. What happened? Oh, we just met in a, somebody at the record company said they had a single. He said, "Look, you look very commercial to you." Yeah, I had long <laughs> hair. I was like, "Very commercial. I think yeah. we've got the right slot for you. Come and pr- promote this record." And it was the Ostrich that yeah. you had written. Yeah, and what was what really got my attention was that it was written. These guys had gotten drunk in the back room with yeah. a, with a with a two track or whatever, right. and a tambourine and a, and an electric guitar yeah. that was all tuned to B, all yeah. the strings tuned yeah. to B, and, and <laughs> every string was B. every string was B. <laughs> okay. and it made a horrendous noise, but a really yeah. great noise. Yeah, and um, so anyway, that was the ostrich, and yeah. we okay, we'll do this. Yeah, and then Lou and I started talking. We found out that there was something else going on here. 
that he was pissed off because they wouldn't let him record the songs that he he'd really written because he was hired to do songs in the style of Liverpool, you know, just whatever's pop at the time. Yeah, exactly. So he was like a, just a go-to songwriter guy. Right. right that right. was his thing. Right. And then he showed me some of these other songs, and they, although they were written on a on a on a guitar, it sounded very folky. Yeah. Um, there was this literary quality to them. And so we got off on this tangent of talking about literature and all of that, uh-huh. and the value of risk in literature, and uh, so it got kind of lofty. Yeah, and he was under the uh, heavy influence of Delmore Schwartz at the time. That's right. right. And that was his poet laureate guy. His, That's right. His his uh, teacher. Yeah. So when so that that so this preexisted the the factory and all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. And when you went, so we just said, hey, you know. Let's go out and see if we can make some money at this stuff, you know. And so I had the viola and a and a and a, a recorder. Yeah. And we both went and sat outside the Baby Grand on 125th Street, yeah. at the jazz club. Uh-huh. And we sat there and we made we we made quite a bit of money outside of Baby Grand until the p- cops moved us on. You were just street performing? Yeah, just sitting on the sidewalk. And, and he had a guitar and you had a viola. Yeah. <laughs> what were you playing? Playing, we played. I'm waiting for the man, and playing. You know, all, all the, you know. The, That's what. That was the first time those songs were played. Yeah, on the street. On the street. Then we, the cop moved us. Go down and try 74th Street. There's a club out there that you know you can stand out there. Yeah, yeah. So we went down to 74th Street, but, but 125th Street was where we made most money. And this was just a financial endeavor. Yes. Come on, really? How yeah, it was. It was like let's see what we can do. I mean, what you know? How come I never I, knew this? But to me, I mean, I'm coming. I'm I'm coming from rural Wales, yeah. and I'm sitting on the street in Harlem, and I'm playing a viola <laughs> next to a, a acoustic guitar, <laughs> and like people are actually throwing coins and dollar bills. Well, they in the, probably not. They've I mean, probably never seen it before. They were so. Well, what is going on with these guys? Right, and and it's. Um, so it was an eye opener, and I'm watching Lou handle people that were coming up, maybe who wanted a hassle, maybe yeah. we weren't sure who they were. Yeah, that was that was an education. How did he handle it? Oh, it was beautiful. Really? Yeah. Like, like was he tough? Yeah, or, uh, yeah. <laughs> he was a he had an edge. Like to him? He, he, he had a means of bringing a conversation screeching to a halt. He could do know? it, and, and he just sort of very quietly say, "Are we bothering you?" <laughs> <laughs> So Wales, I have no uh, sense of Wales. Can you explain it to me? Very, very rural. This stuff was very much part of the Industrial Revolution. A lot of coal mines. Yeah, and a, a heavy tradition of choral singing. Yeah, everywhere you go, if you have a Welsh rugby team singing, you forget it. You yeah, know, there's a, they're singing. Yeah, a lot of chorals. A lot and of what chorals. Ca- what kind of upbringing did you have? What was your your father's business? Uh, my father's a coal miner. My mother was a school teacher, and all my uh, my. The whole family was really driven to bring people out of the coal mine and into education. Yeah. And that was the drive. Yeah, to get out of the ground. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So a lot of them did. Yeah. Did very well. Yeah. Was your father like, you know, in the hole every day, kind of covered in black? Yeah. Come home, just horrendous. Yep. Well, I mean, the sad part of it was that because of his age, they moved, they they give him the night shift. Yeah. So that all the younger guys would always get the day shift and go home at night he would have the night shift and come home at seven in the morning just as i was going to school so Ugh. it was really you know you lose touch easily and were you how many siblings do you have uh, none Is it just you yeah oh, that sounds a little lonely yeah <laughs> and when did you start playing uh, as soon as i could yeah. I gotta, <laughs> you gotta make 10 some... or 11 yeah i mean they gave me a viola in school yeah yeah but my mother taught me piano so it's, yeah. it's all very in-house 
But as the only child, I imagine it must have been comforting to at least, you know, make noise, make sounds, make... Not allowed. No? Oh, really? Not allowed. What do you mean? You could not... I was really avidly listening to all the orchestral music I could on the radio. Yeah. So my uncle bought me a radio. Right. It was like a, a yeah. shortwave radio. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to everything, Russia, from Switzerland, all these orchestras, these great orchestras, and I was listening to them all. Sunday morning, no music. People are walking past the house to go to church. You're not allowed to make any noise. And, yeah, they're repressed. Did yeah. you have to go to church? I did. Yeah. yeah. Bad. Well, <laughs> boring. Yeah. Yeah. There was never, the, the, the idea of God was never pounded into your head with yeah. any success? Yeah, some form of God was pounded in. I, I try to keep him out of there. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I made him into a musician. So yeah, why not? Yeah. So you're able to translate it. Yeah. Uh, okay, so like from the streets of Harlem, uh, you you ended up like, it's it's interesting to me that it was, by that time you, you, you had a reputation with a recording label. They knew you were a go-to guy. How did they know that? How did they decide to set you up? What was it that what, that they decided to put you with Lou? I d- Nobody put me with Lou. I oh. mean, the, the, the rec- that Pickwick Records, was yeah. they weren't interested in what Lou and I were doing. Yeah. I mean, we just said, hey, look, Let's take our thing and try and put a band together and do it ourselves. Right. And I thought, we could put this avant-garde shit that I was doing <laughs> and put that, mix that in with the rock and roll, and we'd have something that was totally unique. You know, from my point of view, my bugaboo was everything had to be unique. You just did not show any genealogy in what you were doing. That was you it. You just didn't know where this came from. It was boom. Right. And so we we did that. I mean, Lou could improvise, like... Nobody's business, and you know we, that's a lot of the stuff that Rhythmically, we did. Rhythmically, he was no, like, no, verbally. Oh, he just, could, he oh could, really? Yeah, he had the gift. Yeah, and um, so a lot of the songs were driven, were were pulled out of that. Pulled out of, pulled out of what happened that morning. Uh-huh. You know, shit that was happening on the street. I yeah, mean, it's yeah. like yeah. it was really good. So you guys would just get a groove going, and he'd just start going. Yeah, and and. Uh, so I said, hey, listen, we could give Bob Dylan a run for his money here, I said. Yeah, yeah. We could never do the same concert twice. We just improvise the concert. You just make up the lyrics, and off we go. So, and that honored your avant-garde yes, sensibility. exactly. And when, so when you guys... And it cuts him loose to do... And he dug it. Yeah. Because he wanted to for get... For a while. I think, I think... I don't know what happened. I, I, I think he could get, he could get inside people's heads i mean really easy which is, which is very good i yeah. mean you know and and um sometimes it wasn't benign but that's fine yeah uh <laughs> not every day is a good day <laughs> yeah and, and it just it got tense and just kind yeah. of blew up yeah was uh, it? well no it was it was more of, of, of a, a you know of needling uh-huh i mean there were times in bars that that yeah <laughs> I was warned about it, but he had the way of, you know, somebody was drunk and come up, you know, staggering up. Yeah. You know, it said, uh, let me ask you something. Um, have you ever fucked your mother? He would say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was just sitting there going, oh. shaking my head. Uh, <laughs> not the right time, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you guys, uh, so, but in your mind, integrating your, what you were doing on the avant-garde yeah. level into rock music. Yeah. That that was really just uh, a way of um, 
It was just, it, it was an impulse. You, you didn't know if it would work, and you didn't know if you would ever find did, somebody to do that. I did, right. I mean, but it did work. As soon as we did Venus in first, as soon as we did it. heroin, that was it. That was it. Yeah, the stamp was there. Right. I mean, we did, the, the, the thing that we were trying to, one of the other things that was honorary about it was that everybody, in order to get a gig in those days, you had to play the top 10 uh, any of the top 10 numbers that right. were there in order just to get a gig and we were at the cafe where we didn't do any of that we just played our own shit you had to be a cover and, band yeah and and the guy said look you play Black Angel's Death song you play that again you're fired so we played it again yeah the thing um, we made it really difficult for people to figure out what we were doing mm -hmm. that is our guitars were detuned in a specific way and we went to town with that one yeah and it made the sound different. Yeah. And it, it sounded great because it sounded a little squashed. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. it was great. And uh, when, and how did, did we, when was, when did Warhol get involved with you guys? Or were you still He around? came to one of the gigs. Yeah. Fortunately, just before we got fired. Yeah. And, uh, and then he said, well, you know, we're thinking, he, he had films that were being put on at, there was a Cinematheque in New York. There's yeah. a festival of new films. Yeah. Because, Everybody and their mother were making films. Sure. Eight millimeter, sixty millimeter. It's happening again. Yeah, it's, you can just do it on your phone now. Yeah, though. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So all of that that was going on around everybody. Andy was right in the middle of it, and he was he was putting up his films. Yeah, which was one camera, you know, no movement. Yeah, and that was it. Yeah, and so he said, "I went. I'm looking for a band to come and play in front of what we're doing." So, um, what's this? What's this? Sixty-seven, sixty-eight. 67, 68, something like that, yeah. And it's, it, you know, so we end up on stage in front and they projected on us. Yeah. And it was all like, you know, yeah. uh, it's a mess, but... The but New York version of Psychedelia. Great. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of weird, isn't it, that like at the same time, roughly in San Francisco, there yes. was some other thing going on? Yeah. Do you think about that ever? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I recognize that it was, you know, that they were trying to do the same thing, only they, had, they were all a little... Um, happier. Yeah, happier, <laughs> yes. <laughs> What an ugly word. Yeah. <laughs> they seem to be finding joy in what they were doing. Yeah, I know. And, and embracing I know. things. I know. <laughs> where I know. The, but that was the New York vibe then, though. There, there, was, a, yeah, there was such was, an intensity was, and an edge. Yeah, when we came to L.A., they let us have it. Yeah, and, oh, did they? Well, Cher said uh, famously that this music will replace nothing but suicide. <laughs> oh, my God. That was good. But I think it also, like, it's somehow the difference between maybe heroin and acid you know that the tone of uh, of New York was a harder edged tone, and there, you know, what was pushing there was it was definitely something different. It was, it was pushing into the grit where they were trying to push into the sky or yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, I just uh, was there ever some yeah outside of so you when the Velvets went to L.A. or when you went to L.A. there was definitely that you were carrying that New York with yeah. you. Yeah, they they uh, in at the trip they um, they very thoughtfully sort of. I ID'd us with a dressing room and, and drew on the dressing room um, a gravestone. Yeah. I said Velvet Underground. <laughs> oh, my God. It was great. And so when you left that band, or when when whatever shit went down, went down, was there a, you know, were you sad or were you just sort of like, fuck it, I'm moving on? Do you have regrets? Yeah, I, was I, I was frustrated. No, but I mean, the first thing I thought of was that, you know, I, I've got some skills that I should be able to 
hone into some kind of production activity. I thought that I could be a producer because I had certain skills. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I went to uh, Jack Holzman and who is the head of Electra at the time, who signed Nico. And I did the first Nico album, the Marble Index. I did the arrangements on Marble Index. I didn't produce it. A beautiful record. She was she was something else. I was just listening to to stuff again. Like do you, do you have like you seem very lucid. I mean, what memories do you go back to of those times? Like if you think of Nico or you think of the Velvets, are there specific memories that you're like, oh, that was a fucking moment, or is it just a general? Time yeah, I mean, every record. I mean, she would she would lose track because. I'd be in there overdubbing and, pl- and and building this castle or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And she would only hear, like, the sound of the doorway, for instance, yeah. or the window or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then when you played the whole castle, it was, you know, she she responded. Yeah, so yeah. at the end of it all, I mean, she burst into tears, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and this happened every album, yeah. you know, so <laughs> yeah, that yeah. at a certain point, you know, Nico crying. I said, "What are you crying about now, Nico? <laughs> it is so beautiful." <laughs> well, that's sweet. Yes, very sweet. So, those were your first experiences with uh, actually being the producer of records. Yeah, I mean, I I took that record marble next to Jack, and and uh, I was shocked. I mean, Jack yeah. said, "You know, I really like this record." And I thought, "Whoa, yeah, you know, this yeah. in this." This particular time to have an European classical, neoclassical piece like that album is. Yeah. And to have Jack. Anyway, I said, look, I want to produce. So if we come across anything, he came up with the Stooges. That was it? Yeah. It was that simple. It was because, like, you know. Yeah, I got a call and he said, come to Detroit. We've got a band that maybe. I, I see when you, you like me, you know, I'm not a huge music nerd, but I love certain people and you create a mythology in your head. Like, you know, in my mind, there was some conversation that had to happen between you and Iggy or there was some other thing that happened. But usually it's just sort of like, yeah, yeah a guy told me to it's go. Just, you know, it's a, it a, a pallet of beer. And, and it, that's it. Yeah. So they I was had, in his house and he'd sit and I went to see him. Yeah. After, after seeing the show, but the show was enough. I mean, the show. It was magical. You know, he's got this thing. Who, Iggy? Yeah. So you, okay, so he they signed them, and this was their first deal, and he was fucking out there. And you saw him in New York. Yeah, but where? It, it was all, no, I saw him in Detroit. You went to Detroit. They, they were opening for the MC5. Right. And I hated the MC5. I mean, it's like, you know, a Nuremberg rally at the MC5. <laughs> they were a little, they had a, an agenda of some kind. That's right. <laughs> um, but, I mean, in contrast to to Iggy, I yeah. mean, it was, which was very playful and enjoyable. And, yeah. And, um, and a little disconcerting, I would imagine. A little. Uh, yeah, yeah, but. Not really, because you knew this guy had had a, had a heart behind. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, wasn't you? So when we were out to talk the yeah. next day or whatever. Yeah. In his, it was in a pharmacy or something. Was, and, and then I think Nico had been there already or something. It was I, all, I read about that. And and <laughs> something happened. Yeah, and in the house, right? In the they, house. Yeah. But but he had these guitars. And the thing about the, he had these uh, lap steel guitars, okay. and they were tuned to one note. Yeah. And I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah. You know, because that's just what I, I just spent f- six years sort of living down, or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> Can't we add some notes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, but it was interesting because he said he, he would sit there and play with these thing all night long because it was an isolated farmer. So yeah. And, um. But all in all, that kind of sensibility and all of that just 
built a really good picture for me of somebody who's not going to go away. Really? Uh, you uh, felt that? that. Yeah. And that turns out to be pretty true. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's not going away. No. But uh, what when you did the Stooges album... So you're you're a new producer. You've done you've done Nico with 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 the Labrador orchestration and, and you know in sort of a a, a softer sort of a more classical vibe. Right. So as a producer, because I don't talk to many guys that produce a lot of records, especially these seminal rock albums. So you 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 see this lap steel. You see Iggy Pop, and then you go in and you hear their songs. So what are you thinking? What what do you bring into that? Well, I was ready for anything. The main thing I was wondering about was yeah. how do we create what goes on on stage right and put it on the record in the studio right and it's really a, 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 a silly question you'd really you'd work with what you could work with um but what was um obvious from the beginning was that they knew exactly what they were doing and they meant business right and when Iggy came into the into do the vocals I mean yeah. we had we had 10 days I think yeah. we had five days to record five days to mix right and um and then just before he came in to do his final vocals um he came in and handed me a sheaf of papers and there were the lyrics yeah and I thought holy shit yeah um, this kid's prepared. He's yeah, he's getting you know, no, and, he, and, it was, and it was really painless. Yeah. I and mean, it just went straight through. And um, but when you look at that album musically, it would seem to me now looking at the the way the album's laid out, or the uh, you know, in side A and side B, like I would think that 1969, "I Want to Be Your Dog" and "We Will Fall" are sort of signature John Cale sounding um, tones. Not not purely John. It was really Stooges. I mean, Jim wanted that. But there was that that movement, that yeah, that yeah. sort of pacing that you, you're sort of known for, and then the other side is just sort of like, ah, let's have fun. Yeah. And when you when you were listening to these guys, did you just let them play? Was there something yes. about because when you know we will fall goes on a while. Yeah. No, they knew what they wanted to do. They did. Yeah. I they, didn't have to tell them very much. I mean, it was very professional. So what did you bring to the sound of it? What you were just, just on the as tight, make it as tight as possible. I mean, really, you know. Squeeze it into a, a a really big noise into a small box. Yeah, you love, do. You love that record. I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do, you, do you still talk to Iggy? Yeah, yeah. I run, I run into. I, yeah, I, I saw him at the last time I saw him was years ago at the Elvis Centenary. And it, right, so, right around the same time, you start doing solo records. Yeah, eventually came to solo records. I, I I tried a few bands, didn't work. Yeah. Um, what was missing? Management. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very difficult to pull off you didn't yeah. want to be a, a band leader necessarily yeah I, I didn't mind being a band leader but it just I didn't I I didn't work I, I had a lot of different people in bands yeah and um, some of it was when I went to to London that was when I had Island Records and I had Spedding and, and that band yeah that was really uh, open season I mean that was like the wild west for me because Everything that I wanted to do with the view that we, we tried with that band, and yeah. I could uh, spreading you could play anything, and you'd, you'd, so you'd you'd, done, you'd you'd done everything that you'd push the envelope to the point where you were ready to come back a little, or what? No, no. I mean, I, mean, I just I didn't find enough new things, you know, just, <laughs> with other people or within yourself. Yeah, within myself. Yeah, I was kind of losing my sense of humor for a number of reasons. Yeah, and um, yeah, there were there weren't happy times at the end of the London. The London which thing. in which a lot albums? of really a lot of um, which albums were these 
Fia Slow Dazzle and, and Helena Troy. A lot of really um, out there albums. That, that well, yeah, definitely. Uh, and those are your and that, performances. Yeah. Well, that trilogy is sort of yeah. like signature your stuff. But you're saying in retrospect, you were at the end of your rope. At the end of that <laughs> series, yeah, I was. It was kind of burning, burning my candle. Or, yeah, you just pushed it out to the the limit. What? Just drugs and sanity. Yeah. Yeah. That <laughs> happens. Not smart. Right? It, yeah, but what are you going to do? I mean, it was the world. Well, I got in. out of it as soon as I could. Yeah. Yeah. And but the album before that, I mean, Paris nineteen nineteen is like that's a you know people love that record and that's a, it's very yeah. different. And what what happened between that and Fear of Slow Dazzle and Helena Troy? The improvisation came back in. All of Paris was kind of finished before I went in the studio. So and was, th- those are all tight songs. Yes, they're, they're lyrically beautiful, and they they all have that. They're almost you know they you can sit down and, and actually feel good about yourself after you listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> no, as you, but you know, in a melancholy way. Yes. Yeah, I'm not yes. saying that. I, you know, yeah. you you go like. No, uh, I, I know. Yeah. I know. No, it's I know. A, but it, but it is because it's it was it was worked on. It was it was uh, manicured. Yeah, yeah, by you. No, more by Chris Thomas than by me. I mean, and, I did what I did and, and just sung and played. But then it was really the there's a lot of attention that was put on. I, it, it showed me a different sense of producing. Like he came from Air Studios and the BBC regime of recording things, which is kind of strict, but it's it also produces very good results. So what what exactly happened in between uh, you know Paris 1919 and Fear that you you just got frustrated and you're like I'm not honoring it, myself or what? Pretty much, right? Pretty much. I mean, it needed more open-ended stuff i mean a lot of the songs on that fear you could go out on stage and you could open them up yeah you could do improv or whatever sure, yeah change persona yeah you know musically or physically no yeah. but uh, lyrically say, you okay know, the way in delivery right and that's what drove the solo shows was really you could pare it down right so all of these songs could be done and you could change your personality Every right. night, pretty much. So there was a theatrical element to it yeah. that that required risk. Yes. And yes. What, okay, that replay. I mean, that kind of risk was really manageable, and it could be handled. Right. And um, so I, I enjoyed that. I mean, it's changed. So you know, just okay. Well, I'm going to sing uh, Antarctica starts here, very yeah. sarcastically, so, right, or right. whatever. And those kind of any windows they, yeah. they, you could hear them on a solo show you could right. get somewhere with it so you still honored the idea that like you know the the songs are just a template for me yes. to yeah. to emote through at any however right. I'm feeling at the time exactly and then somehow you know once you entered the the Fear of Slow Dazzle Helena Troy era that you you put yourself on the line yeah and and then you got away from yourself yeah well I I think I don't think I got that far away because I had a band and I, I and really putting on a show, bringing people along with you. I mean, there was some some really great great moments. I mean, that, but uh, this was like the, this was a period of sort of disturbing theatrics, right? Some of it was disturbing, but a lot of it was really just creative. I mean, yeah. trying to trying to do different things, and 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 a lot of it worked, and some of it was hilarious. Yeah, hanging upside down on a, on a stepladder, you know, singing Heartbreak Hotel was like. That, yeah, that version of that song is like monumental. Like I, I for some reason in my mind I would connect, but they, I guess it, the time the time doesn't really work out. 
like how did you come to uh to get the um the the modern lovers how did you how did oh, that that was the, one of the things i did to us that we signed uh, modern lovers jonathan well what was uh what was richmond how did you approach richmond I f- well, somebody came into my office and yeah. played me a tape. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, leave it with me. And he yeah. came back uh, two days later, and I listened to these tapes. And the one thing about this this was uh, there's a song called Hospital in there. I love that song, When and You Get Out of the Hospital. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it starts off as like a really uh, a, a weak uh-huh. kind of persona. Thing. But as it progresses, the weakness becomes a strength. Yeah, yeah, and it transformed, and I thought this is this is like a strange phenomenon. It's very good. Yeah, and songs like Government Center yeah. that was so naive and and, and uh, old world. Yeah, I mean it was like really good. I mean all Americana, Child, childlike. Yes, it, it, it was coming from a genuine place. This yeah. guy was, was thinking like a fourteen-year-old who'd never gotten laid before. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. and it and. Um, and this guy said, well, Jonathan, well, Jonathan, well, Jonathan, you know. Yeah. Well, Jonathan remembers, you know. And I'm going, what is this? It turns out that he was a guy that showed up at the Boston Tea Party at every VU gig yeah. and wrote poetry to the band. So he was a... He was a huge fan. An obsessed fan. An obsessed fan. Of the Velvet And I just did not remember. Yeah. And... Did, did, did it click a memory? It did, it did click. Yeah. And yeah, I thought, oh, shit. Yeah, I remember that guy used to come around. It's like Louis, <laughs> really, but the guy's a pain in the He's here again. He's, <laughs> and, um, but the thing is that he had this persona that I thought was really unique, just like Iggy had one. Yeah. And I thought, this is something, you know, like I was going for personalities, not going so much for like hits, or anything, yeah. which is not really what, what record companies you know, I didn't make myself both, any 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 fans at Warner Bros. were doing that. But I think what you respond to maybe is that they're both they're very earnest. Yes, that you know they're they're, <laughs> they're very funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I you know, know you're, you're almost like, is this What's a put he on? Talking about yeah, now? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And no, it's really him. This yeah. guy is that passionate about this. Yes. Yeah. And everything he's done since then. And when I saw him in what, something about Mary, I yeah. thought that's the perfect slot for him. You know, it's like, <laughs> damn. And he's I like guess. the same guy. The, you know, you, I, every time I see him doing anything, because in my mind, somebody like that, you know, he made that first Modern Lovers album, the one you did, is like fucking important record. But then he sort of kept doing that in one form or another, whether it was acoustic or not. And, and, and the tone and the, the experience of how he saw the world didn't change much. No. And then when you see him in person, you're like, he's got to be bitter or angry. And you're like, he doesn't seem like it. He's no. just is locked in this thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I hope he's happy. He's one of those guys where I'm like, I, I hope that guy's happy. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> you know, yeah, totally. And okay, so uh, let's just go back real quick. So oh, after those three records that you called it the, the dark period, did you feel that you were fucking losing your mind, or did you just feel burnt out? No, I didn't feel I was losing my mind. I thought I, I, I was losing my sense of humor. Mm. Which I really taking yourself too seriously or just too well. No, I, would, I wouldn't. I wasn't so. I wasn't laughing as much. Oh, you're angry. Yeah. Yeah. And so I... Yeah, yeah. And what did you do to get out of that? Um, just changed my pattern of behavior. Yeah. And decided, you know, this is this has got to stop. Right. Because it, it's not helping anybody. <laughs> and I got to... 
<laughs> so yeah. I went back to back to the states and dried out. Yes, good man. So let's talk about the other production. Uh, the other uh, like, can we talk about Brian Eno for a while? Sure, I've seen Brian in years. You haven't? No, he's a producer. He's a very, he's a very successful producer. But the sound, man. I mean, I think like you know, in, in listening to some of the stuff, like he claims that listening to the Velvet Underground defined sort of how he saw music, and I, it, it seemed... I think, I think it may it may have defined how he used equipment. Yeah, you know, because he he broke equipment, like you know, or did things with them that you know. I, I know a lot of engineers that would say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. why are you doing that? Yeah, right, right, that. right. Yeah, yeah." But it it's the way things work. I mean, it's the way you, you get sounds i mean but it sounds like when i listen to like the album you did with him i liked a lot because mm-hmm. i was a huge uh you know eno fan and velvet underground fan and in uh but the way that album was mixed was really how it held together and that was you no it was it wasn't it was neither brian nor i it was it was it was agreed that we would we would just do this part of it oh really but we weren't gonna go into the studio and mix and it's just to just so you wouldn't kill each other yeah i mean i think he realized that Neither of us are going to be happy if we both go in there because we we both got strong yeah. ideas about what these things are. And the best thing to do is to shake hands and say, let somebody we trust. And we did. We found, you know, somebody who had worked with Brian before. And he, he was very good. But he, that was he put, per- put he put the bow around it, you know, and wrapped it up nicely. And that was sort of like, I mean, in my mind, that was sort of like him coming back, or at least Brian coming back to more, you know, kind of songs, funner songs. Yeah, yeah, it, like he'd gotten out of the sound. Uh, do you appreciate, in terms of what you come from on an avant-garde level, the the ambient records and all those records? I mean, do you dig those things? Yeah, I, I know what they are. Oh yeah, <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't learn much from them. It's... Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I often wonder, and I, and I say this with some respect, if he knows that he sort of gave birth to new age music. I, I wonder if he knows that that you know that 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 all those well, everything... elevator music. Well, yeah. not elevator music. I mean, massage music. You know, like the yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like yeah. that sort of like when you go into a spa. It's like hey. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that that's the legacy more oil please <laughs> exactly <laughs> now all right so let's talk about um the 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 patty smith pairing yeah <laughs> so this probably brings you back to new york or you still in new york no i had a conversation with her when i was in new york and, and um because uh, all that stuff was after you. I mean, the the, the original, the, the New York punk movement was like, what, five years? Maybe after the Velvets had done, really. Yeah, it was it was working out of the, out of the war, um, Worcester, Worcester Street. Yeah, the St. Mark's Poetry St. Project. St. Mark's Poetry Project, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I knew that that was going on, but I didn't know that it had gone beyond with Patty. Yeah. And I went to see her. I was up in Woodstock, and, and she was playing up there. Yeah. And um, it was, the, there was this, the case of somebody with the gift of the gab again, yeah. you know, with with <laughs> yeah, with, yeah, with um, that was unstoppable kind of. Did you put that? You know, that was her band. She had the band, right? The band was a family. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah, and the whole thing about that band in the studio. Yeah, was that everybody watched over everybody else, and yeah. I came in there swinging an axe and <laughs> saying, "Yeah, you know, yeah. you you uh, we got to change the instruments you're playing." You know, like we had to call SIR up, get a bunch of instruments in there that were not warped. Right. 
And that sort of upset the Apple car. What do you mean warped? They were literally playing shitty instruments? Or? Yeah. Oh, really? Well, they were out of tune, yeah. Yeah. It's very <laughs> difficult to keep them in tune. I mean, we were recording, but at every every step that we took, this guy was out of tune, that guy was out of tune, this guy was in tune, that guy was out of tune. You know, uh-huh. it wasn't as if they weren't paying attention. They were paying attention, but they play, and they were a live band. The kind of discipline that sometimes is required in the studio is... You know, got to do it again. It's a little different. Yeah, and um, if you play it so hard that you knock it out of tune, it's like okay, that that can go so far. But yeah, anyway, it you know, getting instruments in there that, that sort of um, created a, a different landscape for them to 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 deal with, and they you know like it's the you don't want to interrupt. The love that a musician has for his instrument. Yeah, you know he's 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 earned this instrument. He's he's gone through all this shit to get this instrument. <laughs> yeah, he loves yeah. it and he plays it. And he likes the sound of it. Yeah, and then somebody comes along and says, "You got to play this one." <laughs> and you know, it's very different. But it was, did they know, do all right with it? They did fine with it. They did fine. What was it? it? Because like it seems like now that you're talking about it, that she was you know fundamentally a poet, or she saw herself yes. as a poet, and they were literally a band backing a poet. Yes. So you had to, and they were basically a rock band. Yes. I mean, there was not, it was not, you know, they weren't, weren't pushing the envelope at all, necessarily. No, they, and, were, they were a rock band, yeah. And so what did you, and you just, you just tightened them up, or you sort of, you, did you have to? I didn't really have to tighten them up. No? No. no. I mean, I think the, I think the most I did in the, in the, on that record was to have Patty improvise poetry on top of herself. Do you miss the, do you, like, in, in terms of being a guy, because you, you're much more, you're proficient on the production side than I even realized in the sense that you knew how to play this game. I mean, you were in the record business. Yeah. So you understood how it worked. You understood who the kings were and, yeah. and, and how they put things together. Do you miss that? It <laughs> part of the record business? It's gone. It's gone in a way. Yeah, but I... No, I don't miss it. I no. mean, I think I never was part of that. I never yeah. felt part of that. Anyway, yeah. It was, it was more of a... A performer. I yeah, mean, yeah, I, yeah, I get off on stage. I don't. I don't That's, get yeah, off yeah. signing contracts. But but I mean, in terms of cashing like, checks, cashing checks is Whoops. fun. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, just the idea that you were a guy that they they trusted enough and respected enough as a producer that they would call you in. Uh, yeah, that must have been exciting. You yeah. had it. You you obviously have an amazing ear for for production. I mean, how do you go from you know you go from uh, uh, the Stooges to uh, to Modern Lovers, Patti Smith, and then you produce which you produce a Squeeze album. Yes, and that's like a whole different game. I mean, that's sort of the difference. I guess. Well, it, no, it's it's it really was where I came from though, because the stuff that we did in London, yeah. was all um, uh, low finance. Yeah, you know, in a number, in a couple of cases. We had to call up the band afterwards and ask them to return the microphones that they'd taken home with them after the, you know, because the guy is like, yeah. we, we want to go back there and work some more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was, it was, it was really being on the, that was really being on the ground floor of a movement that was going on. With Squeeze? With, with Squeeze and all the other guys, uh, Sham 69, you know, a lot of that stuff. Um, that, that the new British pop thing, yes, post punk, yeah, the yeah. post punk, and it's tight. And it was Miles, yeah, Miles Copeland and his label, yeah, and, yep. and was uh, was working with those guys. I mean, in, in it terms was very of, funny. A lot of it was was just hilarious. Like why? Oh, it's it's it just sort of um, people working very earnestly and very hard, yeah, and screwing up, 
Yeah. And then, you know, putting, <laughs> you know, yeah. you book the police on a tour. Yeah. And there's three of them. Yeah. You put them in an Econoline van. Miles drives them down to Dover. They're going to Paris for a gig. Yeah. Where's the carne? Yeah. What's a carne? What, what is a carne? It's where you put a list of the instruments you take it across <laughs> okay, with you. Yeah. You said, right, it go, zooms back to London, gets the carne, comes back down, off they go. I mean, it's it's early days, you know, yeah, but, yeah. but a lot of very funny, funny shit was, was going on. Yeah. And uh, all right. So it, now that you've survived all that, and here we are, yeah. you know, in when you got back together with Lou... Of, what ten years ago or whatever? Yeah, for the VU big, one. And big song. disappointment. <laughs> yeah, it, the way I, I had an idea to go um, to Bam and yeah. talk to Harvey. Yeah, and say how he. I, I, I thought I'd write an orchestral piece in homage to Andy. You know, and so then at the at the memorial service at the party of those Julian Schnabel comes along and said and I say you know I wanted uh, he came up to me he said we got to do something for Andy I said it's a little difficult now to do anything for Andy I said but what do you got in mind <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he said well we got to do something I said well I've got this project that I've taken to Harvey with you I said let's go talk to Lou yeah so he sort of molded that together a bit and we started talking and talking until we got you and then Lou. It, yeah, and then I went back to Harvey and I said, okay, now projects changed a little bit. It's no longer a requiem or a, you know, it's it's now uh, a piece that's a collection of songs that Lou and I will write and we will just the two of us perform. We're not reforming the band. We're just doing this because I thought uh, short answer would be more interesting to see the two of us together on alone on the stage. Yeah. Writing, playing these songs that we'd written specifically right. for Andy. Then getting Maureen and Doug and, and getting yeah an orchestra. Yeah, yeah. That, so. And that's what happened. And um, we filmed it and we did it. And, um, and you're happy with that record? Yeah, I mean it's it's yeah it it it, it did what it was supposed to do. It's, it we, we by the skin of our teeth, I think we got it. We got it done. Things started unraveling a bit, but. Um, uh, and like what? In what way? Relationship-wise or musically? Not. Mu I think we're very efficient when we have music stuff to do. We do. We have three weeks to write it. We did it. Yeah. And we both have uh, cassettes of every rehearsal and how every song was written and how every uh -huh. song was, uh -huh. and all the conversations that went around it. So at some point, somebody's going to have have a, have a yeah. A day doing it, yeah. Um, and the Velvet Underground reunion was a was a disappointment to you. Yeah, I mean, we started off. We, we could have done anything we wanted. I mean, we could have stood on our heads and, and uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, but what the way things unraveled was was really a very natural and uh, sort of sweet way. They came good, Mo and Sterling. Yeah, uh, you know, they'd come along and say, "Hey." We gotta do the song. We got the song because they remember. The, you know, let me do this song. Let me yeah. do this song. And all these songs I didn't know because they were written after I'd left. Right. And so it all, it all suddenly became an exercise in classic uh, hits. Yeah, of of re, 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 revitalizing a catalog. Nostalgia. And, and, yeah. Right. And instead of like doing something that everybody would look up to us and 
maintain the standards that we right, have. Right, 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 right. And um, so it's, I guess, well, yeah, it must so, be a little, it's a, I always wonder that about bands. It's sort of like, let's just go up there and play the hits. No, I hate that. Right. So and, I, a, and I hated that. Right. So you would have rather just sort of like, look, we're all artists still evolving. Let's fucking get together, try and tap in what we used to have, and fucking take a chance. And they weren't willing to do it. Well. Yeah. Too scary. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. Do you, uh, when you see, when you, when you get together, I got, you know, I've got friends I haven't seen in 20 years. I mean, when you get together with somebody like Lou or any of them, is there, do you, do you, does it all come back for better or for worse? Or are you completely different people? Well, I don't know. I yeah. mean, I haven't seen him in a while. I mean, I, come, I have conversations with him. I mean, yeah. I have, we exchange mails and stuff. Yeah. And we have a, a lawyer for all, what we're doing and right. all that. That seems very straightforward. So, right. So, okay. You know, I'm yeah. happy the way things are because, um, you know, if you, you scratch an itch sometimes, yeah. it starts to bleed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, let's talk about the new album. I don't think they. I don't think they sent it to me. We can talk about the new album. Absolutely. Really? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, Who's they? Whoever set it up. Really? Yeah. Before. Uh, uh, let's not talk about it if you don't want to talk. About uh, of course, it. I want to talk about it. That's why you're here. I'm here to you know do whatever you yeah. want to do. <laughs> Are you tired? Are you aggravated? No. Oh, okay. I, I mean, um, you get tired of talking about this shit. Yeah. All right. All right. So let's uh, let's talk about the uh, the the new album. <laughs> Let's do it. Without Shifty Adventures it. in Nookie Wood. Good. Yeah, it's got a lot more, it's a little funkier. Yeah. And it's got, I mean, the songs are about a lot of different things, and um, they have, they all have really nice grooves in them. I mean, what type, what type of groove are you working with? Well. Like, what inspired you? Uh, Dre. Oh, yeah? Snoop, Cocaine. Yeah. So it took you a while to come around to that, huh? Well, like it's 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 really not trying to emulate them, but, right? You know, the, there's all this stuff like Big Mellow, the Dirty South, yeah. The, you know, they they do that. Um, when they play things at forty five records at thirty three, and and, yep. and sing over them and stuff. It's like, um, so really, th that was kind of like a, a rubric, you know, like. You want to fuck things up? Try this, sure. You know? And then you you go back and you find all these rules that are just ready to be broken, right? And and that that's really exciting. I mean, it's you have so, different you have different attitude towards things in the studio, and how you you know how you 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 play things at half speed or whatever, you know. And it, and really, a lot of the songs like um, like Nookie Wood, for instance, yeah. Has sound design in them, and we got it right into a lot of sound design. You know the kind of sound design that you have in, in movies where you you establish the atmosphere of a room by what you put over it. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so we established the atmosphere of the song yeah. by what's happening at the beginning, which is sometimes a Vietnamese commentator being put through a tannoy, and you're in a really different place. You're in uh, Blade Runner, all right? Of a sudden. And so, is this like is this pre-existing audio, or you made the yeah. audio? So no, we audio. took just a pre-existing pre-existing audio we found somewhere uh, on the web. Is this the first time you started working with that way? Because it would seem yes, that's exciting, well, man. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's, it's it's really unruly. Yeah, and it's great. You know, so you can apply uh, sort of the the same standards of avant-garde thinking that you used to yeah. to, to classical music, exactly. music, yeah, and then just fucking break it open and now use the entire 
uh, catalog of recorded sounds yeah. as your yeah. instrument. The, the, um, the, uh, the, there was also this idea behind the song that I, I read a story in The Independent in yeah. London about um, Sea of Trees. The sea of Trees is a wood in Japan. Yeah. It's on an island. Yeah. And it has no uh, animal life at all in it. It huh. is just undergrowth, uh-huh. and it's very quiet in there. Yeah. And on a certain day in the year, um, they have uh, wardens that go and patrol whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw this little little uh, YouTube video about it that showed the the the, the game or another game or but the warden of the. Coming to check on the, the trees or yeah, whatever, yeah. and on this one day, yeah. the day after, what happens is the police arrive, the ambulances arrive, and they go through the thing because people kill themselves in the, in this forest. They go there for on, yeah. on this. And nobody knows why. And in Japan, it's a totally different issue. Yeah, killing. Why? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it, it has a span of meanings and nobody knows quite what to do because the people that have killed themselves in there they don't fall into any pattern they're trying to study it and figure out why this that uh-huh. and, the other. and there was this in this little youtube video this guy was you know he arrives on the day and first thing he does is look at the parking lot and see how long the cars have been parked there because if someone's been been parked there for a long time, you're going to find somebody. Yeah, right. And then he goes and finds a tent, and he he talks to the guy in the tent. The, tent, the guy will not come out of the tent, so he's just squatting outside the tent, talking to him. Well, be be kind to yourself now. Just, so he knows that he's there. Yeah, for that. yeah. And he doesn't. And it's, it's really very interesting. It's it's fa- it's sort of like the Golden Gate Bridge, and like the the uh, I saw a documentary on the Golden Gate Bridge where what? people. That. Did you read that, that thing about this uh, engineer, this architect from New Zealand that was trying to call the suicide box? Uh huh. That was trying to tie the suicide rate to the Dow? No, I didn't. They, uh, that's crazy. <laughs> did, was, he, did he? Did he? Was she, he able to get a logarithm on it? Did she, they, I did, don't know. I don't know. But but I mean, I saw it was on the Tate uh, Tate Gallery in London. It was the first broadcast that they made about. You know, which was about breaking taboos, and uh, you know, it was a thing that the Tate put together. But she was on there talking about how she was trying to, you know, create something that would give people. Um, well, this documentary I saw was just people. That's a destination, a suicide destination. Yeah, and you see people, you know, who go there, you know, over a span of days, and you know, think about it, think, really, plan it. Yeah. It's, it's. I think it's called the Bridge. And they actually have footage. They had cameras set up, you know, stationary cameras, not manned cameras, that captured the thought, you know, that you could see the deliberation. Some people step over and they kind of like stand there for a minute. And it's bizarre, but it sounds like this woods, for whatever reason, has the same kind of appeal. Choreography, yeah. Yeah, because they, you know, the, the... the the newspaper reporter that wrote about it went with the police, and every now and again they stopped and they found somebody who shot himself over there, found somebody hanging over there, that, that, somebody who harakiri over there. Same day, yeah. That's fucking mind blowing. So you know, how did this inform the? Uh, it's just that whole. I've been trying to write a song about that for, for a long time. Go see of trees, and I couldn't. Um, 
but it, it's all in Nookie Wood yeah. in a weird way because it has that atmosphere and and um, the the Aura? kitchens in the kitchens of the Mardi Gras. Uh-huh. The cooks of pestilence meat, you know, and it's it has it has that claustrophobic idea right. of of what goes on in a place like that. And also in the person who's about to in do a per, it. I, yeah. You know, you look at the, the whole thing is beautiful. I mean, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. foliage and everything else is yeah. like, but, you know, what he's looking for, he finds notes for people. He finds things. So it's, um, yeah. That's, that sounds uh, amazing. And when, when you, uh, like, was this the first time you really sort of, you know, came around to, uh, to sort of, you know, integrating ideas of hip hop in your head? No, I've been doing. I've been trying to do it for a while, but I got, I got. There's a song on the new album called uh, uh, "Vampire Cafe." Yeah, and that one has this lurch in it. The beat, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just like it's about to fall down. And, and, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it that was really came from listening listening to Doctor John, the Night Tripper. You know, this early that, that the yeah, way those yeah. things used to go. Yeah, yeah, and I I remember seeing him at the at the. It's great in LA. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. That that New Orleans groove that almost uh, you that's know a, that's it. Eric Abadu. That yep, that's it. Yep. It's that's uh, it. It's got a lot of a lot of traction emotionally. Yeah. Because you know if you pick it up, you're dancing. If yeah. you slow it down, you're dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I fucking love that groove. Yeah. So uh, all right. Well. I feel like we've uh, we've done what we could do. You, yeah, you okay with it? Yeah. What about uh, yes. real quickly, Leonard Cohen? Leonard, yes, maestro, yes. Profound influence, um, an envious presence. Yeah. I mean, he's very good. It's the way he constructs things. Yeah, I mean, I throw away. I, I tend to throw things away, but he, he's a way of really. Of, of crafting his sentences for years, I think. For years, you know, it's Absolutely. like it's the difference between like I got I got to work and like I'm doing this. Yeah. <laughs> no, but when did he try? Did he always play guitar? Or did he? When did he I start? Don't I, I don't know. I've never asked him. So. And what you think that uh, you know the like because the poetics of that guy, like you know, it, it's one of those things. If you keep listening to it, like he's only given us so much. You know, there's only these few things really. And it's kind of well. A, there are fifteen verses to Hallelujah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot. Yeah, that's, a, that's <laughs> all a about Yahweh. About <laughs> I couldn't sing all those. I mean, those verses when when I when I got all of them, I thought, no. Yeah, got to do the cheeky ones. Yeah, tighten it up. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, John. Thank I, you. I, I hope uh, I didn't frustrate you. No. Good man. Not at all. Thank I you. Appreciate you coming. That's our show. Uh, I wish I could hang out, but I can't. Go to WTFpod.com. I hope you enjoyed John Kelly. It was, uh, it was a real privilege for me to talk to him. It's, it's kind of tricky when you've got a guy that's been doing things in a thing for 50 years. <laughs> you know, but we did all right. Uh, what do we got coming up? Dom Barris. Dom Barris on Thursday. Dom Barris and I met at the Comedy Store when I first moved here. Don, that is a very specific, uh, very unique and very, um, uh, you know, revealing interview and very comedy store related. I will give you that. 
Dom Barris on Thursday. Please go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. Enjoy the site. Get some merch, new merch on the way. More of those fancy ceramic mugs made by Brian Jones up in Portland. Coming your way soon. Oh, my God, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I've done some damage today. This might be it, folks. This might be it. Lard-related blood thickening. That's what's going to happen. He died of pig. Somebody stop me. Boomer lives!